We're going to wrap up uh, chapter 2 this morning. We've been in James here for a little bit of time. If you're new with us, uh, we've taken kind of a Western theme, which we'll explain a little bit more shortly. But James is a really blunt, to-the-point, action-oriented book. And cowboys are just like that. So we thought we'd kind of put that spin on it. Um, we also have uh, some sermon notes this morning, but they're all blank. So uh, you don't have to stress and worry. Some of you who are fretters, you don't have to fret this morning. You can just write whatever you want, and it's the right answer. So just kind of open space for you to jot down whatever God might be uh, telling you. Sometimes there's just a name that comes to mind or an action item uh, that will be there. Uh, how many of you are good with cars? And I don't mean driving them, but rather working on them and figuring them out. Let me just see your hands really quick. Okay, very good. Uh, note these people. Because uh, <laughs> the rest of us... Um, it's just kind of a mystery. Um, James uh, does, does this. Carl, can we bring up the first slide? I'm clicking and it's not happening. Um, James shows us something in, in his book uh, that, that basically is, is kind of a, a fundamental truth about Christians. It's a fundamental truth about cars. And um, I had enough car problems growing up um, that I learned very quickly that if I was forced to be a mechanic uh, as a career uh, I would starve, and I would never get to start a family. So that steered me away from that, you know, that path. But I did learn enough about cars, about just some some basic things. You take two gears like this. If they are not both working together, and if they're not engaged, you have problems. You're not going to go anywhere. You're dead in the water. Spiritual, spiritually, sometimes people have the same kind of mystery surrounding it, and going, this God stuff is all just a giant mystery. And James boils it down to something really, really simple. He says, let me give you two pictures, faith and works. Both of them must be necessary or else you're dead in the water, just like your car. Now, he's going he's gonna to go into some more things here. But as we start, uh, um, I just want to give us something. I just want to put something out on the table as we discuss this whole section on works and how it relates to saving. This is really a continuation to some degree of last week where he's continuing some of the same idea um, but perhaps one of the more confusing ideas to people about God and what saves us, what actually saves us, is this relationship between faith and works. And it's, to put a big term on it, it's the doctrine of justification. And let me just lay out for you basically, very simply, what Christians believe about the doctrine of justification. What saves us? The whole Bible agrees on this one point. Ready? That we are saved by God's grace. That it's a gift. It's a gift through and through. And what we do is we receive that gift. Now we receive it by faith. We looked last week at a life preserver and how faith and professing that you believe that that life preserver can save you is different than actually reaching out and grabbing onto it. If you believe that that can save you, if you profess that that can save you, and you grab on, you're saved, right? But if you miss one of those, you're not saved. So, Christianity stands alone on this, that it is all God's doing. There is nothing that we can do to save us. So, Jesus plus anything that I do does not save. It's Jesus alone. I receive it. I'm saved, okay? So I just, I want to put that out there because 
What, what can happen if you're not paying attention in this first three minutes of the message? You can take what's being said and you could veer down this road and this trail that will lead you actually away from Christ. It will lead you away from life. It will actually lead you to death. As we'll see shortly, it's actually a demonic path. Because it sounds so similar. It seems so much like church and God. So, we just want to get that out there. Now, we will never stop celebrating that good news that it's all Jesus. We won't ever stop telling that story. We won't ever stop talking about it. That's the gospel. But what's great about what, what we're in right now is we have this, this parallel truth, not a com- competing truth, but a parallel truth that says this, that works are essential as well. That, that, that works play a giant part in this. That's why on the cover of your, of your bulletin this morning, it says faith and works 100%. Yes to, to, to both. Okay. James chapter 2. Uh, verse 19 is where we're going to be at. James is continuing uh, this whole dialogue about faith and works, but he kind of ramps up the illustration here a little bit by using something common to every one of us, and that is a body. And we'll see that in a second. Look at verse, let's pick it up in 18, and I'll read through the end of the chapter, and you can kind of hear this continuing thought. Here it is, James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So here's what I want to do. I want to take this first little snapshot of dead faith and what he's talking about and then contrast it with living faith. And he talks about both these things, dead faith and living faith. Now, uh, I have kept aquarium fish for most of my life, and aquarium fish are really a great pet. Um, because you don't ever have to worry, like, if you fed them water, uh, you don't really have to clean up after them too much. You know, there's, there's some good positive things. Some negatives, you can't, you know, snuggle them or give them hugs. You can't take them for walks. Um, and what I learned over the years is there's really kind of an endless way to kill your pet. Uh, there's just so many variables there, and if, and if the degree is a few degrees off, you will, you know, you will, you will kill them. Um, you don't have to work at a fish store, which I did at one point, uh, or even have fish to kind of know the universal sign of it's time to go to the store and get a new pet, right? Um, this is it right here. And um, believe it or not, uh, my old manager at the fish store, uh, he's, he's performed CPR on fish before. And uh, the way you do that, this is, this is part of what he did. This is how you do mouth-to-mouth with a fish. He's grabbed a dead fish body that anyone in the room would have thought, oh, the guy's dead, you know. He grabs the guy and he starts going like this and forcing water through his gills and he's revived a fish before. And it's kind of a cool thing. So you can try it at home um, when you see this sign. Uh, but, 
But here is the picture that James so vividly, so just direct and to the point, says your faith without deeds looks like. It looks just like this. A corpse. He, he compares it to a body. He says, a body with no breath, a body with no spirit, that's faith without deeds. Now, it was alive at one point, but now it's useless and it's a shell of a thing. Uh, let me just show you uh, from, from reading these. You don't have to turn here. Uh, but just look at the, at the bolded words of each of these. And we're just going to kind of track James's argument through these first couple of chapters about useless, futile living. Okay, here it is. James chapter 126, he says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. There's the word. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? James 2.16. And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body. What good is that? And now here in, in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is, what's the word? Useless. So I just want you to see this pattern that James is putting out. We're only a couple of chapters in, and he is just driving home the point. It's useless, it's pointless to have this, this shell, this kind of portrayal of religiosity, and not have the life behind it. James leaves really only two options. He says, have a deed faith or have a dead faith. That's really all there is. Your faith that expresses itself in deeds or a faith that is dead. And again, black and white, he makes it pretty simple. And if it's dead, he says essentially this, it is good for nothing. And what you do when you have a fish uh, and it's dead is you just, you just dispose of, of, of the body. It's good for nothing. Look at verse 19 with me for a second. In verse 19, um, there, there is a passage that ought to be frightening uh, to those of you who, who, um, who, who want to follow God and who are trusting God and maybe have walked with God uh, because it's, it's kind of a shocking verse. He says this, it, James is essentially exposing the fact that there is a non-saving belief. And what he's alluding to, remember he's writing to the Jews, right? He's writing to the Jews who are of the dispersion. They've been, they've been dispersed because of persecution. So he's writing to his Jewish brothers. It would not have been lost on the Jews what he was saying here. He says, you believe that God is one? Basically good for you. Here's what he was alluding to. He was alluding to something called the Shema. I wrote a paper on this uh, for part of my schooling. And the Shema is a part of a saying that every good Jew being raised would say every morning and every evening. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord God is one. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. And they would repeat that in the morning. And they would repeat that in the evening. And, and it's not lost on the fact that, that he's saying that. Now, here's where he goes on to it, though. He says, What good is a stated orthodoxy if the very next verse is forgotten? Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.5 reads this way, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Here's the picture he's saying. Jews, those of you who state twice a day, like good faithful Jews should, that you believe in a monotheistic God, that there is one God. 
If you state verse 4 and fail to live out verse 5, you know what that qualifies you? It qualifies you to the level of a demon. Good for you. You're on par with demons. If all it is is that you believe in one God. Now, that's the part that ought to, that ought to frighten us. Now, mind you, uh, kind of a little side point here. But I was thinking about this and I thought, man, how is it that demons believe that and what's their response? What's the response in verse 19? What does it say? They shudder. You ever been so afraid you just get a little quiver go through your body? That's what it's talking about. It's dread. It's fear. And yet flippant sinners, of whom the Bible clearly indicates all of us are imperfect people, flippant sinners can go, yeah, I believe in God, kind of throw up a little shout to, to my God bud once in a while. Do you see the, 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 the difference? You have demons who don't have a saving faith, they believe in God, and they're shuddering in fear. You have flippant sinners who are just kind of throwing up a, yeah, I believe in God. And I thought about it, I thought, wow, demons are actually, they're, they're more aware, they're, they're privy to kind of the, the big picture of what's going on. There's a scene at one point where Jesus is interacting with two demon-possessed men, and they say, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? seems that these lesser spiritual beings, rudimentary in so many different ways, have a, have a clearer picture of what's really going on than many of us who just walk the earth and say, yeah, I believe, I'm good. Pray to prayer once, or whatever it might be, and feel somehow content in that. Here's the frightening thing to me, that there is a faith, there is belief in the name of Jesus as Savior that doesn't save you that leaves you lost, that leaves you under the wrath of God. And is it, as in James is calling it, it's demonic. Because it seems like you're so close because you've, you've got this belief. Here's putting it a different way. Profession, which would be public acknowledgement, which the scriptures clearly teach you should do, is not the same as possession. Possession as in, I have, right? I possess something. And possession as in, I am affected by or controlled by. Now, there's a fantastic promise in Romans chapter 10. And maybe you've heard this before. I hope you have because it's a really amazing promise. And, and you ought to know it. Romans 10.9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, there's profession, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what's the word? saved. You will be saved. We talked about this last week. That if we don't understand how to read the Bible, it's not a giant mystery. To some degree, God's put it in the hands where children can read it and understand it, and yet scholars have studied it for years and decades, and they're still gleaning from it, right? But if we read the, if we read the Bible and we just want to grab a verse and keep lifting verses out and putting them on placards and building a whole thought process and theology and formation of who God is and what he's about based on that verse, do you see already we can go in two different directions? You take this verse right here and you build your worldview on it, what does that mean? It means that you are getting around trying to get people to say, here, come here, make this confession right here. Now just believe it. Do you believe it? I mean it. Do you believe it? Yes, I do. Good. Move on to the next person, right? Do you see how that, how, how that could become your sole thing? You're going to just make people do this, right? On the flip side, if your favorite book was James and you got to this passage, 
about the fact that if there are no works with your faith, you won't be saved. Do you see the direction you would go? What, what would it be? It would be frantically doing, right? I mean, to save yourself. And you'd be running around. Let's not even be sitting here right now. We, don't, we need to be doing. We need to save ourselves. So the, the whole point is this. We need to read our Bibles in context with the Bible. We need to be able to read a verse like this and say, why did God put these two parallel truths here? Are they in opposition to one another? Is one saying one thing and one saying another? That's why even marching through the entire book of James has been really good. We know already early on, James doesn't believe in a works theology. That if you keep the law to perfection, you'll be saved. Earlier in this chapter, look it up. He says, if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken it all. You become guilty as a lawbreaker. He's appealing to something else. He's appealing to the grace of God that will save you. And yet here in condensed form, he's drawing out this really important truth. Here's how I would say it. Don't stop at believing. Believing is great, but don't stop there. Don't come to a place of confession and belief and let it stop. Real conversion, in fact, won't stop there. From the very beginning, there's been superficial believers. In other words, those who profess that they believe, say they believe, and believe to some extent, maybe to the level of demonhood, right? They believe that God is one. Their eyes have been opened. There really is a creator. There really is a God, and I need to believe that. That's a good starting point. But to press on from that, what what is one of the first things commanded in Scripture for a person after they believe in Jesus Christ? What is it? To be baptized, right? Jesus, as he's giving the great commission to his disciples before he's going to be taken away, he says this. He says, go into all the ends of the earth and make disciples, teaching them to observe all I've commanded and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an act of obedience. John the Baptist came on the scene. And he was preparing the way of Jesus. He was the cousin of Jesus. And he's on, the, he's on the scene. And as he's there baptizing, it says that some Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, came. And they were coming out to his baptism. And he starts to call them names. Brood of vipers, which doesn't land very heavy on our ears. But evidently in the day, it was a pretty bad name. So he starts calling them out. And he says, who warned you of the wrath to come? And then he says this key line. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't come out here and put on a little show about repentance. Bear the fruit. Live the life of what repentance is all about. What a great little phrase to let roll around in your heart. What a great little prayer. God, would you cause the fruit to come that's born in keeping with repentance? Let it not just be something that I did at some point or a profession that I made at some point. Now, Think about this for a second. If someone is possessed by an evil spirit, read the book of Mark. If you don't believe in that, that's all through the scriptures, by the way. We're talking about demons here in James. I thought I'd throw this in. But go, go read just the book of Mark. You have people possessed by demons. Now, if someone is possessed by an evil spirit, how would you know that that's true? I mean, just how would you know? How would you know if someone's possessed or not? What do you think? Huh? Their actions, Right? I mean, there would be some demonstration that you go, wow, that's different. That person's possessed by an evil spirit. Now, those could be varied and whatnot, but there's some external sign that they were possessed by an evil spirit. Now, in the scriptures, we have have demons that are taking the body that they've they've come and, and, and dwelt in, 
and thrown the body into fire in, in, in uh, attempts to destroy it, shrieking things at Jesus and at other people. And there's all kinds of manifestations that you are indwelt by an evil spirit. Now, catch this. That's an evil spirit, right? Make no mistake that as a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You are possessed by God's Spirit. Now, doesn't it stand to reason that if you see someone who's possessed by an evil spirit, it would demonstrate it in some outward manifestation? Yes, it does. Otherwise, how would you ever know? Doesn't it stand to reason, and this is exactly what James is saying, that if you are possessed by the Holy Spirit of God, it will manifest itself in your life. And at times, it will surprise you. You will realize, whoa, that word that was just spoken out of my mouth, that was not me. I didn't come up with that. That welling up of compassion in a situation that would normally annoy me, that was not me. That was the Holy Spirit of God loving that person through me. And that demonstration is there in the same way. 1 John 3.10 says this, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Here it is. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The Apostle John is saying the same thing that James is, that there's an obvious manifestation of faith being shown by our deeds. Here's the question for us. What is obvious from my life? What is it in my life that is obvious? And that might be a penetrating question. That might be a really encouraging question to dialogue with and wrestle with a little bit. Paul's writing to the Corinthian Christians. And note Note the worship that, that goes on here, okay? Here's Paul writing to Corinthian believers at this city, this church that he, that he started. It says this in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. He says, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and, your generosity, and, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Here's the context with which Paul was writing to the Corinthian believers. They had given financially to support the work of the ministry. And what he's saying here is this. You've proved yourselves, and the obedience that accompanies your confession is obvious. Your generosity is obvious to everyone else that sees it. Maybe this is where the idea of put your money where your mouth is came from, Right? He says, you're putting your money, you parting with your money shows that you've, you've, been, you've been reworked from the inside out. I think that's still a pretty good test, actually. I think you track people where they spend their money, and you start to see where their heart lines up. Jesus agrees with me on that. In fact, I really stole that from him. Um, here's the point. God is praised when our lives and our words match, not when our intentions and our words match. I sure wish it was intentions. Because intentions and words are so much easier to keep, to keep from getting, you know, all kinds of nonsense going on with. But he's praised when our lives and our words just line up. 
and he's elevated. Jesus said it this way, that people will see your good works and they'll praise your Father in heaven. Now, this brings us to our, our cowboy's dumb this week, and here it is. It don't take a genius to spot a goat in a flock of sheep, right? And if you're a herder, and it's like herding 101, and the ranch hand or the ranch boss says, go, go get, you know, those 50 sheep from the back 40. This is all my cowboy terms I know. I'm, I'm giving you everything right now. Uh, some of you from Texas are like, no, you're not saying it right. Um, and, and you're supposed to bring those in. I mean, you know, shepherding 101, herding 101 is to know a sheep from a goat, right? And, and as you look at Christianity 101, it says this, that, that the, the, the deeds of Satan and the deeds of Christ are just obvious and they'll manifest themselves over time. Now, I wish it was easy as sheep and goats. It's not. I mean, you've got the disciples who followed Jesus around for three and a half years or so. When Jesus lays this bomb on them, the night before he's betrayed, he says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Remember what they did? They didn't go, they all look at Judas. They're like, I knew it. You're outed. You're busted. What do they do? Yeah, they're like, who is it, Lord? Which one of us is it? So that, that wrestles with me, and I go, I go man, I, I wish it was so plain and obvious. But in that instance, it wasn't. And in almost everywhere you see Jesus teaching, he's constantly assuming in the church that weeds and wheat are growing up together. Maybe that's why the Bible says over and over, test yourself. So, so I don't want to make this so plain and black and white that it just feels like an easy math problem. One plus one equals two, it's just simple as pie. But the point is this. The scriptures are driving home this truth. They're driving home this truth that if you are about your father's business, that will begin to manifest and show itself to you and to others. Now, here's the question I hope you're asking, and that's this. How can I know? I mean, it sounds like I'm painting a picture of a God who's, who's a bit capricious, and maybe he's up there wanting us to go back and forth, can we know? Are we always going to be unstable? What does James talk about in, in chapter 1? He doesn't want you being tossed here and there. He wants you to know, right? And as a loving father, I want my kids to be secure in their love for me. I don't want them to be wondering over and over and over, I wonder if dad loves me or not. It's a loving father, it's a loving act to let your kids know that. So how can I know? What has God done so that I can know? Well, here it is. Obedience gifts us with assurance. If you walk in the ways of God, there's a gift that accompanies that, and it's assurance of salvation. Let me throw out two truths for you that, again, kind of live side by side. Here's truth number one. Truth number one is that the certainty of your salvation is set and it's eternal. The certainty of your salvation is a set, done deal. Because it's based on the one who saves, and he won't lose anyone that he's called. So it's God that declared Abraham and Rahab righteous. And he's never going back on that. That is a set and certain reality. Okay? Listen to Philippians chapter 1.6. It says this, Paul writing, And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to, at, at the day of Jesus Christ. That he who began the good work in you. Even the grace 
to see and believe in a monotheistic God, that there is one God, is a gift. Is it not? I mean, are we really smarter or better because we're pursuing the things of God? No. It's a grace. It's a grace to believe. So that's a truth that is set and is certain. But a second truth is this, that the assurance of salvation, the way I feel or sense it, can fluctuate and is sometimes temporal. Is that not true just experientially? There are times you don't know. You come across a passage, you think you've been saved for years, and you go, wow, that lays it on some black and white terms. I don't know. So the assurance of salvation is temporal and can fluctuate. Now, it's a blessing given to those who are walking in obedience. It's a side gift. Sometimes if we chase after the gift, it goes away. You ever chase after peace? You're worried about something, and you run hard after the gift of peace. What happens? like a bird it flies away right you chase hard after jesus all of a sudden you find peace landing on your life and walking with you it's a gift that accompanies following jesus seek first my kingdom all this other stuff will be added to you sometimes people run hard after the assurance of salvation i want to know that i'm in this is really common in the hospital i get asked once in a while hey can you come in and can you assure this person of their salvation what's the answer no I mean, that's the blunt reality, right? No, I can't. Now, what I can do is I can point to a thief on the cross who not only lived a life that deserved death on a cross, which he was getting, but while on the cross, read your Gospels, while on the cross, both thieves are hurling insults at Jesus, right? And at the very last hour, his heart is completely changed. And he's given new life. He makes a profession of faith. And what does Jesus say to him? I'll see you today in paradise. You're saved. I can show verses like that. I can say this. Look, if you're not sure that you're in, I'm not sure that you're in. God knows that you're in. Let's look at some scripture. Let's pray together. Let's confess sin. Let's confess the finished work of Jesus. Those are the kinds of things I could do. Let me read some verses and let them just kind of just kind of land on you. Here it is. Jesus re- uh, repeatedly warned against the unfounded confidence of salvation that comes from mere profession of faith or knowledge from the things of God. Let me show you a couple of verses. Luke chapter 6. He says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. Then he talks about building on the rock and not building on sand. And when the storms of life come, it's going to beat against the rock and he's going to be totally secure. That's the story of building on the sand and the rock. He proceeds it by giving this basic, simple pattern. Come to Jesus, hear his words, do them. There it is. That's the big difference between building on the rock and building on sand. Let me give you another one. This is after Jesus washes his his disciples' feet and is instructing them in the ways of being a servant. He says this, If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. Another one, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. John says this in 1 John 2. Whoever says I know him, he takes kind of a bit of a negative approach. Okay, Here's Jesus just giving the positive instruction. It's great that you know this, do it. Only those who do are going to be blessed. 
Here's what a person who's doing it is like. He builds his life on the rock. John comes along and says this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly, the love of God has been perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Do you see how that walking in obedience gifts you with the assurance of salvation? doesn't mean you're earning your salvation by walking in obedience, but one of the treasures of just walking after Jesus Christ day in, day out, in all things, is this assurance of your salvation. James has been offering different tests. He would agree with all these guys. In response to trials, in response to temptations, in response to hearing God's word, and in your impartial treatment of people, these are the things God is at work in you. And if it's there, your faith floats. If these things are absent, seek after God. Um, you can turn here. Turn, turn to 1 John. 1 John is to your right in your Bible by a couple of books. Part of why I'm beating so hard on you looking introspectively is because Jesus warned something really, really clearly. He said, be really careful not to do your good deeds for the appearance of others as a show to other people. And he talks about, go read the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to find a place to start, what should I be working on? God, what do you want me doing? Go check out the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, when you give to the needy, when you do these different things, when you go pray, when you fast, when you do all these things, and by the way, I expect all of that. That's just the normal Christian life. Do it not to be seen by other people, but do it to be seen by me. And I'll reward you. If it's done for worship, that's all you care about. You're living your life for this audience of one mentality. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. I want you to listen for both the profession of faith, words being spoken, and the possession of faith, that you are controlled by this faith in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. It says, little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. If you ever wonder about your salvation, you're not alone. The Bible speaks to that. Verse 20. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in him. Walking in obedience gifts you with the assurance of salvation. Now, let me shift gears and look at the last part of the chapter here. James shifts from kind of the negative, here's what useless, dead, pointless, talking about faith is all about. And he shifts gears to say, here's what living faith looks like. I don't know if you've ever been snorkeling in a place like Hawaii or something, but, but it, is, it is unbelievable, especially as a guy who likes fish in general, uh, to eat them, to keep them as pets, to kill them accidentally. I mean, all kinds of things. I just like fish. 
But to be down there and to be swimming in their home and just have this vibrant looking picture right in front of you. There's no question that there's life and vibrancy there. What a great picture of the church, isn't it? All different colors, all kind of there and and living together. Here's living faith. He offers up two examples. Both these examples, by the way, Abraham and Rahab. If you didn't leave your finger, get back to James. But Abraham and Rahab are both mentioned in, in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. That's Hebrews chapter 11. And you can see just all these kind of heroes of the faith. And they're both listed there. Abraham is the revered patriarch of the Hebrew people. Rahab is a Gentile prostitute. Interesting two choices for James to, to kind of jump into. Now, if you look at Abraham, we know a lot about Abraham. Tons of things are written about Abraham. This is Father Abraham. Some of you sang the song, Father Abraham, and know what I'm talking about. There's all kinds of things about his, his life. And the thing that James highlights to talk about his deed that shows off his faith is probably his best-known story and probably one of his best-known deeds. But we really could have picked from so many different ones. Here's his basic deed, if I could put it in a nutshell. It's that Abraham held nothing back from God. He's, he's given this promise by God that he's going to have an offspring, a male offspring, and it's this child right here. And He knows that his son Isaac is the promised child. And it's a miraculous thing the way that that all comes about. And then God asks for that child to be sacrificed. And what's powerful about the story of Abraham putting it, putting, being put in a test that none of us would want to be put into is that in this test of faith, if you line it up with James's chapter 1, how do you respond to trials? How do you respond to temptation? Abraham appears to be unwavering in his trust of God. It says early the next morning he arose. You know what he does? He goes for a long, probably fairly quiet hike with his son. Those of you who are parents, it's just, it's just a painful thought to even begin to go down that road and think through that. And he's marching up the hill trying to live with two truths. I know God is good. I know God is all-powerful. I know God's asked me to do this, which would take away my son, and yet I know this is the child. It says elsewhere, it actually lets us into his brain a little bit, that what he must have presumed is that God would raise him from the dead. That's not just a natural, normal occurrence. But he was putting, he was saying, God, you've got a bigger perspective than I did. So he arose early in the next morning in obedience to his God. What an example of faith. He was called a friend of God, James says. Uh, in, in the song we just sang, I am a friend of God, do you know that you are singing your commitment to the Lord by singing that? A lot of times we sing, I, I'm a friend of God, and we think about the cross and all that God's done for us. You are singing back a commitment to God. Because by the words of Jesus, he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you to. You're my friends if you do what I command you to. What about Rahab? Rahab took in needy strangers and didn't really regard the effect on herself. So spies are sent into the land. This is the story of Rahab. And there's some written about her, but not that much. And she takes the spies in. It's already been told to this people that the the Hebrew God 
is, is this God of gods. And she believes that. And that's credited to her as righteous. And she acts on it. Now, here's what's not lost on the original audience, but might need to take a tiny bit of prodding for us. We can see how Father Abraham, right, and Rahab the prostitute are a little bit at the opposite extremes of things. We get that. But let me walk through just how different these two are and just how much this would have caught the, the Jewish ear by, by um, surprise. She is a Gentile sinner. She's not born into the people of Israel. That's a really, really big deal to a Jewish person. Uh, Abraham's a major Bible figure. Rahab is a minor participant in the story. Abraham's the father of the faithful. Rahab is a foreigner. Abraham is respected. Rahab is a woman of disrepute. Abraham is a man. Rahab is a woman. Do you see how this could not have gotten more different? Here's the big truth. James is wanting to show you that no matter where you fit on the spectrum, I don't care if your father Abraham's super Christian, You need to show your faith by your deeds. Or, if you're all these things, that if you take from a worldly standpoint, these are all knocks against Rahab, the prostitute, your faith must be shown by your deeds. That's what counts. I think it's actually a pastoral gift of James to do that. Because if he left it just at Father Abraham, you know what it would do? It would trick the rest of us into saying, that's Father Abraham, right? Well, that's Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. Well, that's Jesus. He was God. Well, that's that missionary person. They're a super Christian. That's a pastor. He gets paid to do that stuff. And if we leave it just there, it's easy enough to say, well, yeah, certain elite from amongst us, they show their faith really well. The rest of us, we just lean on their good works. That's not it at all. He says, I don't care if you're essentially peon Rahab over here. Your faith needs to be shown and manifest by what you do. Uh, here's, here's a little exercise. You can do this individually, or you could do this um, as, a, as a family. Uh, if you use an E version of the Bible, I wouldn't recommend it, or at least I'd recommend tweaking this a little bit. But here it is. Open up your Bible to Hebrews 11 this week sometime, okay? And take out a pen and circle everything that people listed in the Hebrews Hall of Faith say. Circle all the words they talk about, all the profession of faith that they, that, they, that they talk about. Then take a highlighter pen and go back through Hebrews 11 and highlight everything they do. So we're looking at profession of faith versus actions of faith. Guess which one's going to win out? You got it. The highlighter, right? You will see all kinds of highlighter. You'll see very little circling of things in that exercise. All right, here's how we're going to wrap up this morning. I said this a few weeks ago because James keeps coming back to this point and bears repeating. It's not what you believe that matters, but what you believe enough to do. It's not what you believe that matters, but what you believe enough to do. If you say, I believe such and such, a business partner, a spouse, a parent, a child, a teacher would say, That's great. Show it to me. Because until then, it may just be hot air. I've had tons of students come and say they'll do this, that, and the other thing. Show it to me. Your boss says the same thing. Your relationships want the same thing. So what to do? Martin Luther, commenting on faith and deeds, said this, Oh, it is a living, busy, 
active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. That means without ceasing. That means it's constantly doing. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already been done, it has already done them, and is always at the doing of them. He who does not, uh, he who does not these works is a faithless man. I think about some of you and how you've met some of my needs. It shows real compassion. It shows that you're really considering me and my friend when these kinds of things happen. Some of you have come and met the need long before I've ever, ever even asked for it. You're really, really good friends. You come and just say, here, we're just going to do this for you. That's the kind of compassion, that's the kind of look that says, wow, that's a person seeking to love that person as themselves. What Martin Luther is saying here is he doesn't wait for the, the, the need to be asked for. He just notices it because he's already stopped, looked, and listened for things. He's already paying attention to what those needs are. If I'm so hyper-focused on my needs and asking God to meet my needs, you know what that doesn't allow room for? It doesn't allow space for me to start meeting the needs of other people. And that's just, that's just a growth that's something that God has to kill in you and start to build up in you. Some of you are some selfless saints and you, and you teach me about that as you look to meet the needs of others, as you live out what Philippians says of putting other people's needs before your own and actually considering other people as more important than yourself. By the way, something as simple as that, that's a manifestation of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It just is. So, what should you be doing what should you be doing? Okay, get your pens ready. Here's the answer. I don't know. I really don't. I don't know, and yet I do know. Let me explain. Here's what you can actually write down. You can write down Deuteronomy 29, 29 to make sure I'm not making this up. But let me talk to you about secret things and revealed things. Did you know there are secret things of God that we don't know about because they're secret? It's true. Listen to Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Pause. Control freaks out there. You know who you are. Ready? Here it is. There will be times your father is saying, you don't get to know this. But why? But when? When are we there? Are we almost there? How does this work? What are we doing tomorrow? What's the schedule? Some of you were kids like that. Some of you have kids like that. That's God's sense of humor, by the way, I think. Sometimes the parent just says, wait and see. Sometimes the parent says, that's for the parents to know and for the kids to find out all in due time. God does the same thing with us. So if you're frantically running around needing to know, that's a, that's a faith step for you, right? That's a growth point for you to just say, God, I want to know so bad. But this must be one of the secret things because you've not yet revealed that to me. So there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. He's a good one to keep them, by the way. But, it goes on to say, the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You know what set the Israelites apart from every other nation? They were the chosen people of God. And as such, they were given the law. 
And you read the stories. The Gentiles wanted in on that. They hated him for it, but they also wanted in on it. When Peter comes and starts saying, hey, I had this vision that I'm supposed to be eating unclean things that I've never touched in my life, I'm starting to realize God's good news is for all the Gentiles. You know what they did? They cheered. They were like, let us in. Busting down the doors. So the Jews had been given the revealed things, and here's what they were to do with them. They were to possess them. They're ours forever. They're ours and our children, that we might do everything God's commanded us. Why? Because we know he's a good and loving father, and anything he would ever require us to do is for our good and for his glory, period. That's the heart, the simple heart of obedience. So here's my action point for you. All that God has revealed, do it. He's revealed a bunch of things. If you don't know where to start, write these down. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That will keep you busy for the next 38 years. Here's another spot. Write down Romans 12. You want to just take a passage of Scripture and memorize it and start to dwell on it and start to think about it. That will touch attitude. That will touch on your heart. That will touch on your intellect. And that will keep you busy for another 38 years. I don't know why 38. It's just the number I'm picking. There's, there's a couple of sections of Scripture. You've got your own that, that you read. There's a few verses that I go, wow, Lord, that's almost all I need. If I had to tear out one little section of Scripture, that would keep me busy a while. There's a couple of places. So all that God's revealed, do. Now, in light of that, continue to ask, seek, and knock. I had a neat conversation with someone last week. They said, wow, just the scriptures being preached, here's what God was stirring up in me. I've had this longing to do this thing. It's not really clear yet in my mind what it is. But the message today was that I need to act on it. I need to walk and I need to start doing some of these things instead of just letting them roll around in my mind. God will lead as you follow. Here's what's beautiful. Those who want to begin growing in their spiritual walk simply start. It's really great that the Bible doesn't require us to sign up, go to school, show up and complete a class and show a certificate, right? Or, or, or worrying about proving we're serious to anyone. All it is is you simply start. You simply start walking in that. So if God today is revealing something to you, you just simply start to walk in obedience to that. That's all it takes, you don't, even have to, you don't have to tell the pastor you're serious. You don't have to go to an accountability group and wait for that. You don't have to wait for a women's retreat to get around people and let them know what's going on. You just simply start walking. Some people have to wait till January 1st every year. They're like, I need to show someone I'm serious, so I'm going to start on January 1st. Every day, New Year's Day, mercy's new, every morning. You just say, Lord, I've heard, I'm going to do. That's a beautiful thing. That's a gift. That's a freedom to walk in. Here's what happens when you do that, by the way. I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of warn you. As you just start to, 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 to start, here's what it'll look like. That's exactly what it'll look like. The first steps, you'll be kind of bumbling your way along, fumbling your way along. You're like, man, I've got a heart for, uh, I've got a heart for the mentally retarded. And so I'm just going to start walking in that. And when I'm around mentally retarded people, I feel awkward. They say things that trip me out, and I don't know how to respond to it. And I give my little you know, nervous giggle back to them, and it feels weird. But then at the end of the day, you lay your head down, you go, wow, God, that's what you want me doing, though. I get it. Change is difficult, but I totally get it. You're going to use me in this. 
Pretty soon, months down the road, what was bumbling and fumbling and awkward at first feels really natural and normal, and you're just ushering in the love of Christ to, to a group of people that were made in his image and for his glory. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's all it is. You just simply start to walk in that. I met a guy named Daniel this week, and uh, I see this guy. He's reading his Bible. He's got his Bible open. And uh, I just struck up a conversation with him, and, and, um, and we started talking. And here was so, here's what was so cool about this guy. He's, he's reading the Word in a public place, right? And we're, we're talking, and sure enough, he's not from around here. You know? It's like, people don't do that a ton. If I see it, I'm probably going to start engaging with them. But I'm sitting here realizing this guy's reading the words of life right here in Las Gatas right now. How cool is that? And we start talking, and I started, started just asking about his life and who he was. He's kind of his mid-20s. And he starts sharing with me some things about his life. What I realized is he's not just reading the words of life. He's living the life. Came out after a little bit. He's the son of a pastor. And he's, he's from Kansas City, and he's in some training. And God's moved in his heart. He was going to start down the pastor road. And as he started uh, being obedient to that, he started walking in that. God steered him as he was obeying. And he steered him away from being a pastor. And instead, what God began to well up in his heart was this heart for his native country of Korea and, and India and some different nations. And God's allowed, God's opened doors for him to go be a part of that. And I come to find out he's with YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And I had some connections with friends there. And it was so encouraging for me to talk to him and just get to share with him. And, and he was encouraged, I think, too, just getting to talk with, with a brother as he's out here for, for a couple of weeks visiting. And when I looked at that, I realized, I, I go, wow, the, the variety of ways in which God is moving and using people is as unique and as individual and as spectacular as every little nuanced part of your body. I want to call out a couple of parts of your body here for a second. Think about your nerves. You can't even really see them, but they're touchy-feely types of, of people, aren't they? Your, 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 your nerves provide for you so much of your experience of this life. Think about the heart. Your heart right now is working away. Now, it's interesting that we take the heart, and what does the heart mean in our kind of English language? What is it talking about? I love you with all my heart. What does that mean? Love and emotion, right? You're glad, by the way, your heart isn't emotional. If your heart were emotional, when it was up and doing good, you'd be like... Slow down. When it's rainy out, it's feeling bummed. Come on. You know, you're like you're trying to give yourself some, some kickstart there. Your heart is mechanical and logical and efficient, and that's how we want our heart to be. Weird that we take that and attach emotion and kind of fluctuation to it. Your nerves in your heart, I mean, just imagine life without those. Sweat glands. I mean, just all these different parts of your body that you don't see or think about much, but you take just that one little part. Hearts are super into blood, right? Most of us aren't. Most of us like to have blood, but we don't like to leak blood, and we don't like to talk about it and see it. Here's the picture of the body of Christ. Some of you are really, really quirky because God's put on your heart this one little niche of things, and you're like sweat glands that want to talk about sweat. And you're like, that's just gross, you know? And some of you are into blood, right? And efficiency and logic. 
And when I preach, you're like, man, you're all over the place, Dave. Give me an outline. Some of you are like hair, and some of you are like skin, and some of you are like a little toenail. Some of you are like elbow skin. I mean, just all over the place. Here's what's really cool. Let's not, as a body of Christ, let's not do what the world does. The world tends to elevate our superstars, right? And everyone wants to be just like them. We do this with churches, too. Well, that church does this. That guy speaks this way. That band goes this way. That church is super into this ministry. And the sameness is like a disease when everyone wants to be just like everyone else. Oh, you're super into blood. We should all be into blood because that looks like a really important thing. It is. So are arteries, right? So is what the blood's trying to accomplish, which is to open and close a hand. So if we're all hearts and not hands, it's a giant problem. So here's why I don't want to say, here's what you should do with your faith. Because what I might do, what I might be guilty of, is I might tell you what I should do, right? I might tell you what I'm passionate about. But just meeting this, meeting this younger guy this week made me re-realize, wow, God, you're at work. You're a God of variety. And you're a God that takes all this apparent dissonance and you kind of bring it together like this beautiful mosaic and you go, no way should that tile and that tile form a beautiful picture, but it does. Whoa, that's pretty cool. And that's the picture we're given. I want to invite the band up, and we're going, to, we're going to continue our worship with some singing and with doing something. God left us two tangible pictures, baptism and communion. And they're both things you can touch and smell and feel and do. And they somehow bridge sometimes the eternal and our physical bodies. As we do this, I want you to remember a couple of things. Remember the gospel when you go out and do deeds? Here's what I mean by that. Remember the gospel by this. When you are at your busiest for God, when you are most active for God, doing the most things, your plate is the most full, catch this, you are still the recipient from God. You are always the recipient from God. You are never giving back to God. You're never the one tilting the scale and giving God back. Do not pay God back. Your very eternal life depends on this truth. That you don't go from a debtor's ethic and work to be back in God's good graces. You do that and your mind is playing tricks with you. The enemy is leading you down a demonic path. You cannot earn your salvation. So get to work. Don't do it for your salvation. Uh, Here's the second thing. I think some of us, myself included, I think sometimes the lack of movement in my life has been, as I pull back and look at it, and maybe I've had others speak truth into my life, where I've said I need more prayer, I need more wisdom, I need more knowledge, here's what it might be. It might be that my lack of movement is a cover for procrastination, for just plain old fear in stepping out in faith and following, for laziness, for disobedience, And again, we can put spiritual spins on this by saying, well, I'm just seeking. I'm seeing if God's in this. Let me tell you this. Walking in obedience, taking steps to just follow Jesus and say, God, all I know is this much, then walk that far. 
as you walk forward in things, God opens up more and more. And you have stories in this room that will just confirm that over and over experientially. All right, two very, very tangible ways to do something. First of all, where's Clink? Clink's right here. Raise your hand, Clink. Okay. Um, there's something called the, the, the NorCal Fire Conference. It has nothing to do with Jim Cook and the fire department. It has everything to do with spoken word evangelism. There's a conference coming to our area. If you want to find out more about it, talk to Clink. One of the things that I think our church ought to be doing is this. I think there's times that our effort and our social action and our deeds ought to be out here kind of pulling some of our spoken word along with it. There's other times where our spoken word and all the things we're proclaiming ought to be out front. It's kind of, it's kind of forcing the deeds to kind of pull along with it. Here's what I know. If we make five years from this point, and we haven't had any baptisms, our deed ministry is really strong, and our spoken word gospel ministry is really, really weak. It's just as possible for us to be speaking and speaking and proclaiming and having it fall on dead ears because all they see is someone who talks a whole bunch of hot air and no care, no compassion. The neighbors are like, I don't, people just come and shout scripture at me. I don't know what the deal is with that. So these two ought to, these two ought to kind, of, kind of pull to, together and, and work together. That's one very simple uh, action item. Here's, here's a second one. Next Sunday, we have our second of two two-service Sundays. You responded really well last time we had two services. If we had had one service, we literally would not have fit in these chairs. You responded by saying, I need to get on it. There are people who need to be at this church that aren't at this church right now. So you took a risk, you opened your mouth, you made an invite, and people responded. Next Sunday, we have our second of two kind of practice services. In the fall, we are rolling out two services for good, meaning that we will have a 9 o'clock and a 10.30. So a week from today, if we have two services, look around the room for a second. If we have two services, it's going to be really quiet in one of those services. Here's my challenge to you. Let's not hoard what we have. Let's take it and say, God, by, by worship of you, we're going, to, we're going to give this away. We're going to trust you for increase. Next Sunday, by the way, we have two full children ministry programs. So uh, at both the 9 o'clock and the 1030 service, we'll have full child, child ministry from nursery up through, up through fifth grade like, like we normally have. That's next Sunday. Here's a couple of things about that. Uh, some of you are going to have an opportunity to take your niche in the body and grow it as we move towards fall. Because there are systems that need to grow. There's prayer that needs to grow. There's follow-up and discipleship making that, that needs to happen. And some of you who have been, who've been coming along are, are going to be asked to be stepped into. Don't even wait to be asked. Just jump in and say, hey, I'm sure with two services this might be a need. I'm passionate about it. What can I do to help? And we'll start, we'll start plugging those in and working those in. All right. As we prep for communion, just listen. You don't need to turn there. But I want to uh, I wanna just read, read a single verse. And we're going to look to Jesus as the example, the ultimate example of one who said something and lived it out in vivid 3D life. He said he loved us. He showed it on the cross. He said that he believed this, and he lived it. He's the ultimate example. Uh, Romans 15.1 says this. 
We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. There's a lot in that verse, by the way, of what we're to be doing in following Christ's example. Now listen to verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Let, me. let me pray. Jesus, we esteem you this morning and thank you for showing us the path of what it looks like to marry deeds and faith, profession and possession of truth. God, we celebrate this morning as we take the elements. We celebrate the fact that you came and completed your mission here on earth. We thank you, God, that you were willing to leave what was comfortable and rightfully yours and go outside of your home to come to us. And God, we thank you for drawing hearts and minds, not only in this room, God, but we look forward to the future of men and women and children who you are going to cause to respond to the gospel that saves to the uttermost. And we just pray, God, that we'd get in line with what you're doing. I pray, Father, for next week that you would fill this place up. God, what a testimony it would be, not on Easter, not on Christmas, not out of obligation, but God, by a work of your Spirit, that people would come and seek to worship the God of creation. Pray that just now, as we take the elements, Father, that you'd be glorified by our hearts, that we'd examine ourselves, Holy Spirit, that you'd have free reign in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name. Amen.